It is Tuesday, September 5th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Today, a look back at some of our favorite stories from the past few months. We've been recruiting landlords, and uh, we actually got more vouchers out there this year than we had last year. So of the landowners we have, I'm not seeing them drop the voucher program. All right, now let us unveil the marker. And right now, our highest demand, the kits that we need the most, are our twin bedding kits, adult bedding kits, and our Welcome to NWA kits. I was not even aware of the original ordinance until the trouble began. A quarterly review of Ozarks at Large. First, the news from NPR. Historic Cane Hill presents the Cane Hill Harvest Festival Saturday, September 16th, just 20 miles south of Fayetteville. This day of community traditions and family activities kicks off with an Ozark Country breakfast and features live music, crafts, and demonstrations. Guests can also enjoy the Arts and Eats Market, Kids Zone, and more. Full schedule and tickets at historiccanehillar.org. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents the final season of Listening Forest. Guests are invited to explore an interactive world of light, sound, and wonder in this immersive nighttime experience. Open now. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. Startup Junkies Startup Crawl is returning to Northwest Arkansas September 8th from 5 to 9 p.m. Guests can explore dozens of startups and meet the entrepreneurs behind them, as well as enjoy food trucks, live entertainment, and local craft beers from breweries around Northwest Arkansas. Details and tickets at startupjunkie.org slash startupcrawl. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, September 5th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ahead today, we take some time to, well, look back. The news team at Ozarks at Large spends hours putting together all the individual stories you hear six times a week here on KUAF. And today, we highlight some of the excellent reporting the team has done over the past few months. We first go back to July with the news that fewer landlords are accepting housing assistant vouchers in our region. The housing costs remain higher and demand for rental housing plays a part. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports. Fayetteville City Council passed a voluntary ordinance to include a registry of landlords accepting Section 8 housing assistance. This action was taken in part because some landlords are not renewing their contracts in Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher programs. This has made it more difficult for some tenants with vouchers to find housing. Mitch Minnick, the executive director of Fort Smith's Housing Authority, says there are a little over 1,500 vouchers under contract through the authority. He says typically there is an ebb and flow on the landlord list because it's voluntary and situations change for property owners. As far as landlords, you know, deciding not to accept Section 8 vouchers, that's something that we have seen here in Sebastian County as well. Overall, there is still a shortage of about 54,000 affordable rental units in Arkansas, according to the National Low Income Housing Coalition. And a study from Rent.com found the state's residential rent jumped almost 17 percent in 2022. He says the demand for rental units can be a deciding factor for landlords not accepting vouchers. The things that we have seen in speaking with some of our landlords that have chosen 
to stop participating in the Housing Choice Voucher Program is that they have sufficient demand right now for their units uh, that they don't need to participate in the program. Minnick says another thing landlords must consider is the layers to qualify for the Section 8 housing program. These include yearly unit inspections through a third party to make sure the property maintains a level of habitability. Minnick says although there were about 1,700 families on the authority's wait list with a wait time of about 22 months, that number is down from the pre-COVID-19 pandemic waiting list. He says wait times could range from two to three years before the pandemic. I know uh, our housing authority has been down in past years and COVID kind of slapped us in the face. That's Neil Gibson, the executive director of the Northwest Regional Housing Authority. The authority offers rental programs covering Carroll and Madison County in the west over to Baxter and Searcy County. But we've been recruiting landlords and uh, we actually got more vouchers out there this year than we had last year. So of the landowners we have, I'm not seeing them drop the voucher program. This year, Gibson says the authority does not have a wait list except processing time because it dedicated more vouchers than what is in use. But still, one of the problems is in this area, as everyone knows, there's not enough housing to start with. And we we do have uh, people on the street looking for, with vouchers, looking for a place to live, and it's hard to find one. In addition to the housing shortage, Joy Honeycutt, executive director of the Springdale Housing Authority, points out another obstacle. She says some new landlords might remodel or potentially demolish existing buildings. Honeycutt says landlords usually provide notice that they do not wish to participate in the housing voucher program around the time contracts need to be renewed. Um, so say a person's supposed to renew in August, they may come to them in May and be like, we're not going to renew with you, so you know, you'll know you need to be out by August 1st. And then that person would typically let us know and we would issue them a voucher for them to go out and find another housing unit. Now, we don't personally like place anyone anywhere on the Section 8 voucher program. They have, they're responsible for finding their own unit. Honeycutt says there are misconceptions about the Section 8 housing program and the people involved. She says some people cannot work, have a fixed income, or need support securing safe and sanitary housing. Honeycutt says because of the region's growth, she doesn't expect the impact of the rising costs of living to end soon. So what we're hoping to see is more affordable housing solutions come up with other, you know, possibly partnering in the future, or, you know, other people that are building tax credit units. I know there's several in the area that are coming up around. That's good to see. And for Minnick, he says there remains an interest from landlords to participate in the Section 8 housing program, but he has noticed a downward trend in the past couple of years. I would say for the last at least two years, it has been more heavily weighted towards landlords stopping their participation in the program. Mm. Uh, we do still have you know, new landlords that are coming on, but landlords leaving the program have outweighed that over the past two years. And to try and combat that, we have 
been looking at expanding the number of housing authority-owned properties that we have. For Ozarks at Large in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One, I'm Anna Pope. Back on June 16th, Fayetteville's Black Heritage Preservation Commission unveiled historical markers recognizing the story of Nelson Hackett, the only enslaved person to be extradited from Canada back to the United States. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith went to the commemoration where Hackett's story was honored with a bronze plaque on the western corner of the downtown square. All right, now let us unveil the marker. Ready? Nelson Hackett's historical legacy begins in the early 1840s in Fayetteville, where Hackett labored as a personal servant to Alfred Wallace, according to the new marker on the square. Sometime in the middle of July 1841, Hackett fled Fayetteville and traveled more than 960 miles to a free Canada with a horse, saddle, beaver coat, and a gold watch. Wallace tracked Hackett to the town of Chatham, Ontario in Canada and had him arrested for stealing the horse and other goods. Later in the summer of 1842, a shackled Hackett arrived back in Fayetteville. He was publicly whipped on several occasions before being sold to Texas slavers. The plaque says Hackett's escape set off an international dispute that ensured Canada remained a safe haven for those escaping bondage from the United States. J.L. Jennings, the chairperson of the Black Historic Preservation Commission, said the city's recognition of Hackett's story is important for current residents of Fayetteville and their understanding. I think it's important for Fayetteville just to create that sense of belonging in our community. Um, when, you, when you're able to witness and see your history and understand your history and learn your history, then that creates that sense of community um, that every city is looking for. And the fact that he was such an impactful figure that has gone unknown for so long in his own hometown, um, I think it's just significant that he's finally getting the recognition, like the mayor said, that you know, almost 200 years overdue. Jennings said every piece of the process was important to erect the plaque, and he's joyous to see the end result of work that began almost a year ago to honor Hackett's legacy. We, as a commission, we probably spent a year planning this. Um, we, you know, from looking at the text to trying to figure out how we're going to fund the marker to where we're going to locate the marker. You know, it was a it was a long process. Um, but I want to commend all of the commissioners because we stuck with it. Um, everybody came to the meetings ready to work, and we actually, you know, it feels great to seeing that this, this marker is installed and and for and. Such a prominent place in Fayetteville, also. You know, so like it's my vision that in on you know uh, farmers market days that people will just you know, come around, take a quick second to read it, and you know, and learn a little bit more about Fayetteville. Hackett's story not only documents a single man's struggle, but also explores how that one man activated a transatlantic and biracial network of activists working to undermine the institution of slavery according to the Nelson Hackett Project by the University of Arkansas. The project's lead scholar, Dr. Michael Pierce, associate professor of history, spoke with KUAF's undisciplined host, Dr. Karee Banton, another leader of the project, about Hackett's impact on fugitivity 
and slavery in North America after his escape from and subsequent return to Fayetteville. In essence, we've known, we historians, have known for quite a while, for for 60, 70 years, that Nelson Hackett played a, a really instrumental role or set into motion the events that really solidified, ensured that Canada would be a haven for those escaping slavery in the United States. So that's been known. Let's back up a little bit, right? So you have all the stuff that you found and scoured archives like a detective. So okay. you have all these sources, Mike. But I want to have context of, can you give us the context in which a person like Nelson Hack, Hackett would exist in Arkansas in the 19th century? Okay, so, you know, Nelson Hackett doesn't appear in the historical record until about 1840. Okay. And over in the county courthouse, or the old courthouse, in the archives, I tracked down two bills of sale. So it's very interesting that he exists as a human being only in the court records and only via property property as he, in the bills of sale. That's the only way he, well, that's how he first comes. That's how he comes alive or enters he, your the imagination of the public. Yeah. Absolutely. We know he left Fayetteville, or at least Arkansas, sometime in the middle of July of 1841. He gets to Detroit probably late August Mm -hmm. and crosses the Detroit River into Canada West. Then he makes his way to to Chatham. And Chatham is, it got the reputation right before the, the Civil War of Canada's Black Mecca. Wallace grabs two justices of the peace and goes and barges where in on where Nelson Hackett is staying, and they beat the crap out of him. Um, they beat him with a, uh, a whip handle, they give him a concussion, and they throw him in jail. And they say, we want to extradite him back to Arkansas to face charges of theft. You know, Alfred Wallace has spent all of this money, and he's doing it to make an example out of out of Nelson Hackett. So he pays all this money. And, and to, to get Nelson Hackett back. Mm-hmm. He, they finally get back to Fayetteville in the, the early summer of, of 1842. And we, we have a couple of accounts of what happened. One account says that he was publicly whipped and beaten. On five or six occasions. And that one of the, the whippings was 120 lashes, which is, is literally enough to kill a person. Some of the other beatings were 50, 60 lashes. And we, we heard this from another fugitive who gets to Canada in the 1850s, and he runs into Hiram Wilson, the abolitionist who visited him and and, and tells the story to Hiram Wilson and Hiram Wilson writes about it in The Liberator, William Lloyd Garrison's paper. And what this account says is that the, the purpose of the beating was to make a show to all of the other enslaved people in Fayetteville that if you escape, these are the consequences. There is no end to how far we will go to retrieve you. 
we will enlist the governor of California, uh, governor of Arkansas, the governor of Canada, all of these court systems, and we will we will get him back, and he will be punished. At the end of the summer, Nelson Hackett had all of the signs of all of these whippings and these beatings. And then Alfred Wallace sold him to Texas. And selling him to Texas, and, and Texas was a republic at this time. It was before the annexation of Texas into the United States. And selling an enslaved person to Texas was the equivalent of working them to death. It was a, a form of torture. It was a slow, painful death. You can find the full episode between undisciplined host Dr. Karee Banton and Dr. Michael Pierce and their two-part conversation on KUAF.com undisciplined. The Nelson Hackett plaque is displayed on the northwest corner of the Fayetteville Square. More information about Hackett's life and journey can be found at nelsonhackettproject.uark.edu. For Ozarks at Large in the downtown Fayetteville Square, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Every day at KUAF, we ask questions. That's a good question. I think right now... Uh, yeah, that's that's a really good question. I, oh, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, I so, that's a good question, and I wish I had more data for you. But. Yeah, it's a good, really good question, like how it's different. Yes, yeah. that is a terrific question. Asking the questions that matter to get you the answers you need. You can help keep Public Radio curious when you donate. Give online at supportkuaf.com. And thanks. This is Ozarks at Large. June 20th marked the observation of World Refugee Day. This year marks the highest number of displaced people on the planet since World War II, some 110 million people, according to numbers from the United Nations. Arkansas's sole resettlement agency, Canopy of Northwest Arkansas, also marked the occasion by highlighting some of their employees who have been affected by these refugee crises. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth brought us this coverage. It's a balmy Tuesday afternoon as people crowd into the back conference room of the Canopy NWA office in Fayetteville. Fold-out tables are pushed to corners of the cream-colored room to make space as people hug and talk while they snack on chai, samosas, and West African-style donuts. On one table towards the entrance, a basket displays toiletries, tea, and a soccer ball. We collect welcome kits, which are kits or tubs filled with items that families need when they arrive. And right now, our highest demand, the kits that we need the most, are our twin bedding kits, adult bedding kits, and our welcome to NWA kits, which is one of our most fun kits, in my opinion. It has things like a soccer ball for kids to play with, notebooks, pens, pencils, and tea. So... That's Amethyst Osborne, a co-sponsor coordinator at Canopy. And this is the organization's open house for World Refugee Day, a chance for the community to learn more about the work of resettlement. Jess Clare is the volunteer program manager for Canopy and helps set up today's event. And so that was kind of the goal with this event, was to both make the community feel more involved and also to like kind of make the community aware that there are lots of like businesses and organizations in the area that are led by refugees or led by folks from all around the world. 
Um, so we really want to give people kind of a taste for what we do, um, but also give them the opportunity to kind of mingle with one another, mingle with the community, mingle with folks who've resettled. And since 2016, the agency has resettled over 500 refugees throughout Arkansas. Joanna Krause is the executive director of Canopy NWA and says the past couple of years have been extremely challenging for her organization, which started with the turmoil from the U.S. evacuation and subsequent Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in 2021. Canopy and all refugee resettlement agencies were never designed to, to do crisis response. And that's what happened during the evacuation of almost 80,000 Afghans. It was a tremendously emotional, difficult, logistically difficult period. Um, we would receive notice. The shortest time frame that we got was notice on a Sunday that someone, a family was arriving on Monday and we had to be at the airport. So our staff have worked incredibly, incredibly hard to meet the need and respond to this humanitarian crisis. And Mursal Shirzad was one of those who fled Afghanistan after the Taliban took over. For me, it's really like uh, life changing. So I was studying in Kazakhstan through the United Nations and European Union Scholarship. So in June 2021, I came to Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, to visit my family. But no one believes that the Taliban came. And I heard about the Taliban and my parents uh, talking about when they are the, fir uh, the first generation of when the Taliban first time came to Afghanistan, but never faced with the Taliban. So in August 15, when the Taliban came and raided Kabul, so everyone thought it was only survival to escape the life under this, uh, this regime. And uh, everyone attempting to the airport, my family and I also came to airport to, to escape uh, the life under this rule. But uh, just me and my minor brother, we uh, can pass the border, we can pass the gate, because the Taliban route block and we separated from our fathers, mothers and two younger siblings, that, uh, and we are sending to different countries. Eventually, Shirzad and her brother landed in Germany and then came to Wisconsin before being connected with Canopy and moving to Arkansas. So when we uh, arrived to the U.S., we don't know anyone and we don't have anyone to take care of us. And uh, when we uh, settled to Arkansas, so we don't know anyone except the resettlement agency. So that was the most difficult part that when you don't know the country that uh, you, uh, you came and you don't know that how to trust people and how to build your community and how to, uh, how to get used to the systems. So that's why that was the most difficult part of the experience as I uh, came to U.S. And Krause says focus on the refugee crisis has been growing in the region in part because of the war in Ukraine. Sasha Honcharenko came to Arkansas last May after seeking asylum through the National Uniting for Ukraine program, which helps Ukrainians with a sponsor in the U.S. remain in the country for at least a two-year period. Because it, we, we've been in Jamaica, so far away from Ukraine, kind of close to, to the States, but at the same time it was like, okay, what, what should we do? And we decided to leave like way in Panama 
because my wife uh, my wife's parents they have friends there and we just lived with them for like three months and we honestly didn't know what to do for three months and honestly one week before i arrived to the states um we heard about this program the united for ukraine and we decided to apply for that and like three days they like answered and they said like yeah you can come like welcome and we just like okay let's do that and we just bought tickets and i like honest i arrived to the states in may 29 one year ago it was my birthday it was a kind of beginning of my new season in my life honcharenko's wife is from arkansas but the two met in ukraine now both he and Sherzad work for Canopy. And Honcharenko says while he never thought he would come to the U.S. as a refugee, he believes the experience has sparked a desire to help other people fleeing conflict and disaster. Personally, for me, it's an amazing opportunity to just help them to show this amazing, how amazing Arkansas and how amazing people here and kind of invite them to this like path to try to build this like home here. And Krause says while Afghanistan and Ukraine have gained widespread attention, Canopy has been resettling people from areas all over the world since its inception. Democratic Republic of Congo, Sudan, Guatemala, Colombia, um, and many other countries across the world. And we definitely want to have people whose stories aren't represented in the media as frequently get the opportunity to do so. And it's not just through um, these emergency crisis situations where Canopy is serving folks or the traditional refugee resettlement programs where people may be in refugee camps. We also serve um, individuals who have gone through the asylum process. In 2023, Canopy is on track to welcome close to 150 individual refugees. Shirzad says while resettlement is difficult, she believes a welcoming community makes the process easier and helps these new neighbors become an asset to their new home. Uh, the most important thing that uh, people should, uh, should know more about refugees and have the knowledge of how to welcome them and how to assist them because they are uh, for uh, for some certain points it's not like that they are coming as a uh, visitors or they are coming like uh, to spend some uh, short period of times so that's important uh, to people to understand the refugees and why they are forced to flee their homes and to happily welcome them to settle it in their new home for Ozarks at large I'm Daniel Caruth We head next to West Fork, where a committee of seven women in the small town authored an ordinance, the first of its kind in the state, to enable cultivation of beneficial wildlife habitat on private property. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich met with the committee's spokesperson in her backyard habitat to bring us the story. West Fork, which is located along the spring-fed West Fork of the White River, has a population of 2,400 and is filled with historic homes, old shade trees, and lots of gardens. Bonnie Stitt and her family settled in the heart of West Fork in the winter of 1997 into a quaint blue bungalow planting fruit trees and gardens which have taken deep root into the fertile river bottom soil. Little chicken yard right here on the left. And then I wanted to show you my my new development, which is bees. We, I've had some 
honeybees that just moved into my yard on their own. The bees taking up residence in an old hive. Two more hives have been built to accommodate them. They're attracted here because of the blossoming fruit trees, blueberry bushes, flowering vegetable, and native plants. Resident hens Big Red, Mandy, and Little Bit monitor us as we wander through. Um, back here we have a pecan tree, an apple tree, Asian pear, wild plum, and we're growing a little sweet cherry right there. There's also pawpaw, serviceberry, elderberry, and a mulberry tree laden with purple fruit which stains our fingers. Those are so good. Those are amazing. Those are the best mulberries mm -hmm. I've ever eaten. Aww. We walk past ripening sweet corn and tomatoes through a white picket garden fence surrounded with flowering bergamot into a vegetable garden filled with lettuce, spinach, and squash. The yard measures three quarters of an acre, most of it cultivated, buzzing with bees and lots of butterflies. Thank you for complimenting me on my yard, but there are gardeners in this town that outshine me. It's a, it's a gardening town. We take shelter from drizzle this cool summer morning under a garden cottage porch to enjoy some fresh mint iced tea and discuss a recent controversy regarding West Fork's property maintenance code. I was not even aware of the original ordinance until the trouble began, which was um, a resident grew a wildflower meadow in his front yard, right in the very, very main street that everybody sees when they enter West Fork. And I heard that there were some complaints about that and that a code enforcement officer had come by and asked him to mow. That was last autumn. In late December, she was contacted by a member of a West Fork Garden Club telling her to watch a city council meeting on YouTube where Mayor Heath Cottle discussed a possible revision to the city's property maintenance ordinance in an attempt to satisfy both turf and garden enthusiasts. This is a suggestion that uh, something along the lines of, uh, in section 3.14, West Fork recognizes the importance of pollinators and other beneficial insects, etc. cetera. Uh, the creation of a designed vegetation bed is permissible. Defined vegetation bed uh, will have a distinct border separating it from uh, the main yard, uh, will be maintained, manicured, and cannot consist of an area totaling more than maybe a quarter of the total yard size. Uh, and no single bed could be larger than, say, 100 square feet. Bonnie Stitt says she was dismayed by what she saw. Dismayed because uh, the mayor, Heath Cottle, was actually suggesting some uh, measures that I thought seemed really restrictive to me as a gardener. The main one being that um, we wouldn't be allowed to have over 25% of our yard in gardens. So last January, she asked the mayor and city council to appoint a committee of West Fork gardeners to study the issue. Selected were master gardeners Jane Bryant and Peggy Merringer, planning commissioner Elizabeth Hale, watershed activist Stephanie Reynolds, beekeeper Jane Steinkraus, local garden member Emily Walker, and Bonnie Stitt, who together drafted an alternative ordinance, which she presented to city council in April. So together we have studied <coughs> regional and national landscaping legislation 
environmental issues, and nationwide gardening and landscaping trends. And in creating the document we're presenting to you tonight, um, our goals have been to protect West Fork residents' freedoms to garden and landscape in a variety of ways, while also emphasizing the importance of landscaping that's maintained and intentional, and to provide clear guidelines for code enforcement of neglected properties. After legal review by the city attorney, the ordinance was approved by city council on June 13th. Misty Cottle? Yes. Jeff Upton? Yes. Jan Throgmorton? Yes. Marty Lindeberry? Yes. John Collins? Yes. Don Rollins? Yes. Jimmy Condon? Yes. And that motion carries. That has been approved. Thank you to the yes. committee for all of your work. Yes. Thank you so much. Very much so. Stitt says adoption of an ecosystem-friendly property maintenance code traces back to a meeting held last October with city officials and several permaculture experts. Permaculture encourages self-sufficient, sustainable agriculture. Uh, my grandpa had about a, uh, a two-and-a-half-acre garden, and, and so I grew up gardening. West Fork Mayor Heath Cottle, turns out, is an avid Ozarks gardener. I think that's the important thing to note here is that the city was, that was the whole reason this was on the agenda was we, we recognized that our ordinance was, was limiting um, as far as a, a definition of, of what, what was a good um, alternative to turf grass landscapes uh, within the community. And so, so I was fascinated that, that we had a, a resident that was interested in taking on a project like this, uh, Bonnie put together a, a fantastic committee. Uh, they did great work. They they didn't simply uh, take on a project that was agenda focused. Uh, they they really looked um, through the different uh, areas and topics that concerned uh, what we were trying to do. Uh, you know, it's it's important for a city to be able to maintain some some maintenance controls to make sure that, you know, yards aren't just uh, growing up and, you know, uh, deteriorating property values for their neighbors and things like that. But it's also important that, that a city recognizes the importance of pollinators and, and what role they play in, in the environment. And uh, I, I just think the committee did a fantastic job of, of looking at this from multiple angles and, and coming up with a great ordinance uh, in, in, at the end of it. Bonnie Stitt says the lead sentence in the new ordinance is deeply meaningful. West Fork is committed to creating a healthy and beautiful environment for its citizens. So we wanted to get a good balance between health and beauty. Encourage people to focus on the health with supporting pollinators. She says the city attorney issued an opinion after researching their draft ordinance prior to passage. Tom Kicklack said that this ordinance is very cutting edge, at least in the state of Arkansas, and I'm very proud of that, that our little town has a cutting edge ordinance in support of pollinators. West Fork's new landscape code, it says, draws in part from the National Wildlife Federation's Guide to Passing Wildlife-Friendly Property Maintenance Ordinances. We queried the nonprofit, Patrick Fitzgerald, Senior Director of Community Habitat, emailed that while managed native habitat ordinances are on the rise nationwide, most municipalities continue to lag. He suggests West Fork officials should now offer public education as well as code enforcement training to avoid conflicts between turf advocates and habitat gardening enthusiasts 
pointing to the Federation's online tip sheet on neighbor-friendly wildlife gardening. As for that nuisance wildflower plot complaint that precipitated West Fork's amended property management code, meadows are now legal to grow in town. Meadow vegetation, grasses, flowering broadleaf plants, um, meadow and prairie plant communities, yes, it does. As long as, you know, it's maintained in terms of, you know, not including noxious or invasive weeds. Drafting the ordinance was an ordeal, Stitt says, but in the end, enlightening. What has been for so many years to me something that felt like just a selfish hobby, gardening, now that I've learned about native plants and the whole idea that we can save the world in our own backyards, it has just taken on so much more meaning. It feels like a meaningful sort of life saving, world-changing work. Leading her to pursue a larger mission. I got interested in the local political scene and I want to be, I wanted to be on the planning commission and they voted me in. So now I'm on the planning commission and I'm looking forward to having more involvement. I feel like we have a really neat group of people doing cool things in West Fork and I want to be a part of it. And we'll see what new plans unfold under her watch in the garden town of West Fork. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. In late May, Ebony Mitchell ended her year-long reign as Miss Arkansas. Kyle spoke to Ebony as she was wrapping up her year of traveling across the state, hoping to provide inspiration for young people that she received when a Miss Arkansas came to her school in Harrison. I was in the third grade at Harrison Elementary School at Eagle Heights, and Miss Arkansas always comes to every single school in the Harrison School District. So it was 2005, I'm in third grade, and I'm from Harrison, Arkansas, which doesn't have the best reputation of being the most inclusive place in the world. <laughs> um, it has the opposite as of now, but we're, we're going to change that. Uh, so... In my elementary school, my siblings and I were the only black children in the entire school, uh, at one point in the entire school district. And it's a class 5A school, so it's not super small. But I saw Miss Arkansas in 2005, and it was Eudora Mosby. She was the second black Miss Arkansas. Uh, so when I saw her wearing the same crown I have on right now and the sash and uh, a gorgeous dress, and, you know, she's speaking to us and telling us all these great things, and she's inspiring us. And so when I see her in that position, uh, I really just thought, I feel so seen right now. And I feel like, you know, maybe one day I could be capable of doing something great just like her. Uh, so she kind of left me with this overarching feeling of inspiration and being seen and wanting to maybe do the same for some people one day. Um, and I kind of knew from that moment at nine years old, I'm going to be Miss Arkansas one day. I just have to keep trying and I have to get there. So, you know, once that happened, I jumped into the organization. Uh, I competed in teen. I was a Diamond State princess. And then I competed in Miss Arkansas five times until I finally won the crown. So, <laughs> Well, let me talk because I know one of the things you talk to young people about now when yeah. you go to schools or, or, or events is confidence. Yes. And goal setting. I can't think of any activity that could challenge a person's mm. self-confidence more yeah. than a pageant. That's right. What is that like? And of course, with any pageant, however many entrants there are, mm -hmm. 
all of those entrants at minus one will not be crowned. So that's what right. does that do to self-esteem? Yes. Uh, and, you know, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about pageantry and the Miss Arkansas organization, the Miss America organization, is that we're all there to win one crown. Um, we all want the title, which we do. But at the end of the day, everyone who's competing at Miss Arkansas is uh, there to get their education. So we have future doctors, we have attorneys, teachers, business leaders, um, dancers and all the above. So uh, when we're there, we're really just uplifting one another. And it is a test on your confidence. But I believe that's really the main reason why people do it. Because growing up, I was such an introverted child and I was so shy. Um, I was the type of shy that I would hide behind my mother's leg at the doctor's office. Uh, So (laughs) I, you know, I started dance at a young age at four. So I would be on stage. I danced. I loved performing. It was really a way for me to get out of my comfort zone without being in that one-on-one face-to-face conversation and then pageantry comes along and we have interviews which is where you really push yourself because you're sitting right in front of somebody and they get to know you on a personal level so there really is no better confidence builder than pageantry instead of um, just putting your confidence to test it really shows you how far you can push yourself and what you would do in a situation where everyone's looking at you and everyone's watching but it's also a place for you to shine and perform and do something that not a lot of people get to do you mentioned that you and your siblings were the only children Mm -hmm. of color when i was in mountain home a few decades before you yeah homogenous just white we know about the billboards Mm -hmm. but you said you want to see this change. Yeah. How do you think that can happen? It starts with having a conversation and really showing people that just because of the stigma that surrounds a place doesn't mean it's always true. So being a woman of color and being the first ever Miss Arkansas from Harrison has definitely helped that reputation. Um, The mayor has done some incredible work and the Martin Luther King Jr. Commission is always doing work in Harrison to show people that they are changing. And now, um, you know, we've taken a lot of billboards down that were once up that said the worst things. And now my picture is up on those billboards instead. So when you come into town, you see home of Miss Arkansas, Ebony Mitchell, instead of something hateful, which has been just the greatest honor of my entire life. And, you know, um, the mayor and I had the opportunity to speak at the King Breakfast at Governor Sanders' first ever big event she had while starting her administration back in February. We had the opportunity to talk about Harrison and how much it's changed and how much we are changing. And we want that narrative to be changed about Harrison. So it just starts with a conversation and showing people that just because you hear something doesn't mean it's true. And we would love for you to stop in Harrison, stop at Neighbors Mill, get you a good sandwich, some bread. Um, And I think you'd find there's a lot of lovely people in Harrison. Ebony Mitchell, former Miss Arkansas, speaking with us in late May. Also in late May, we heard from Sarah Neidhart. Her memoir, 20 Acres paints a sober and compassionate telling of her unconventional life growing up in the middle of nowhere, Stone County, Arkansas. Sarah spoke with Matthew and said the book covers a lot of topics. It's the story of both an American era, an important time when the counterculture was making a fairly large impact on at least certain segments of society. It's about life in a marginalized area in Arkansas. It's about family life. It's about childhood. It's about memory. You know, we we start the book with kind of this admission from you talking about class and your place. Uh, You say, it would take me years to understand that the life that most defined me as once poor was in reality the very thing that most connected me to my upper class ancestry. 
the ability to choose to check out. Can you talk about kind of the power of that in your story and in your life? It's been hugely powerful. A class has been sort of this narrative throughout my whole life, something that I'm relatively obsessed about. And it was because I had this strange dichotomy of a, as a child of both my parents came from upper middle class backgrounds, yet I spent my childhood, those eight years we spent in the woods, we lived paycheck to paycheck. My parents were barely middle class often. So that was part of my identity, but yet I had this other part that was upper class that I did see a fair amount of. And of course, it's what essentially enabled my parents to come to the woods. They didn't come with a big cash cow, but they came with that sort of hubris that comes of your family having made it already. A lot of your book is is kind of looking back through the written history that that they wrote themselves. You know, I think a lot of times when we think about historical writing, we think about like, it was very intentional that I'm writing this because I want people to remember this, as opposed to, to what you experienced, where you're looking at vignettes of their life or their moments and, and kind of using that to better understand their story. Right. The letters really, I mean, without the letters, I don't think I could have done this story. And it was being able to get that very contemporary voice that they had. Like, I really have, I feel like I have their voice there. And because they are just letters they were writing casually. And I felt like I was able to really pick up parts of their personalities that maybe I hadn't been fully aware of before. Writing was the main form of communication if you were in separate places. And so people really did talk in them in some ways the way they would have talked to each other in person or on the phone. Let's talk about the move to Arkansas. Your family was living in Colorado at the time, ran into a man who happened to be from Fox, Arkansas, and said, hey, I like it out here. Maybe you will, too. And they said, OK. <laughs> I mean, was it was the decision really that flippant? I mean, pretty much. I mean, it happened that fast. It was a friend of a friend who was not originally from Fox, Arkansas, but had gone down there following some other hippies. And he was in Colorado visiting his friend, who was also friends with my father. And he was going on and on about how wonderful it was down there, the music, the beauty, there was caves, you know, so much to do. And then he left his keys in his car in Fox fashion, and it got stolen or his truck got stolen. He didn't have a way to get back to Fox. And my dad and a friend said, we'll drive you back. We want to go check it out. So it was that casual, you know, like I think my dad was maybe 28 at that point and very impetuous and it sounded fun. So my mom and I came too, and we drove to Fox, Arkansas just to check it out and bought land. That visit, we bought the land. Looking back on it now with the hindsight, what did what were your thoughts being there? It was where I came of age. It, you know, it, I was a baby. I was I turned one almost exactly when we arrived in Mountain View down the hill from Fox. So I it was my home that all, all I knew until I we left when I was in third grade. But at the time had I loved it. It was a wonderful, wonderful childhood. But it also was a very poor part of my life that I carried shame about, partly, I think, because of visits to visit family in Colorado and so I could see that juxtaposition between our two lives. And so I was very aware of our poverty, even compared to some of the other people that I went to school with in that community who lived in real brick houses or trailers. I thought a lot of the trailers were pretty cool. If they were like a new enough trailer, that seemed fancy to me. So that feeling of poverty definitely flavored my feelings about it at the time. I've had mixed feelings about it growing up. You're a mother now. You have a child. As you look back at 
at how your parents were when they were perhaps your age or, you know, had children of that age. How has that shaped the way that you're a parent? Well, I mean, there's no doubt that I still, you know, when my son was young, I had all that natural foods going in my head. You know, I'd kind of lost a lot of it. You know, I love junk food, all those things that I discovered after we left. But I wanted to nurse. I wanted to have natural foods, organic. I still buy organic predominantly. I had cloth diapers. I had a service that picked it up at the door. And those things I kind of did almost without any kind of, there was no activism behind them. It was just came naturally to me to make those sorts of choices. And I think it was because of that childhood. And, you know, when you become a parent, you're often are influenced by how your parents parented. When I was writing the book, I had had sort of not romantic feelings about the woods often, romantic and not romantic. But when I was writing the book and raising a young child, I did suddenly become very romantic about the woods and think how, oh, it'd be so wonderful. You know, like, oh, yeah, this is how did my mother do this? This is ridiculous. But on the other hand, oh, sounds so wonderful. What's it going to be like being back in Arkansas? You know, I don't know. I am incredibly excited and I'm incredibly nervous because I do feel like an outsider in Arkansas now. But it feels like home, too. So I'm particularly nervous to drive into Mountain View. And then we're going to drive up to Fox. The old cabin is still there. I actually found it on Zillow. The land had sold and they had built a big house next to it, but they kept the cabin. So I've found the owner and he's going to let us come onto the property. And, you know, yeah, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I, it's going to burst that mythical bubble that I have. <laughs> you got to finally come back to Arkansas and visit. Tell me a little bit about what it was like coming back. It was amazing. It was surreal, which is kind of an overused word, but it was. And I came with my husband, my son, 15-year-old son, and both my parents came. And they are divorced, but they came, both came. They get along great. So that was really special to see it with all those people. Was there a lot of like, oh, this is really bringing back memories? Was there a lot of just like anecdotes being shared through the visit or was it? I mean, I think my husband and son were so over it by the end because it was just nonstop. First of all, as soon as we were flying into Fayetteville, you could see chicken houses. And of course, my first question when we got out of the plane was to ask my dad, were those all chicken houses, do you think? And he's like, yes, those were chicken houses, which was such a part of our (laughs) memory. But yeah, it was constant in especially as we left Bentonville and started driving towards Mountain View in Stone County, it was just nonstop, you know, the plants, the trees, the houses we were seeing. How much of it was like you remembered? It was remarkably like I remembered. The one difference is we got really lucky. There was no humidity the weekend we were there, which was really nice. Um, It was also surprising to me as we started driving, got kind of out of Bentonville and got into the country And everything felt like these little small billowy clouds of trees everywhere along the sides of the roads. And in my memory, Arkansas just felt like almost overwhelmingly green and wet and kind of messy. And now I live in the Pacific Northwest. So it just looks tiny. You know, the trees are tiny. Everything's just sort of low and small and neat. And, you know, and I live in this forest of giant trees now. And it it, so that was sort of interesting. That was sort of a, a marked difference from my memories. Was there like a, a visceral reaction from your parents and you when you re-saw it? Yes. First of all, the drive onto the land. Once we got into Stone County, in fact, everything really felt the same. And it was 
overwhelming almost how much it matched my memories because I was sort of expecting to get there and be like, oh, everything feels so different. But it was almost identical to how I remembered it. Even the turnoffs and things were right where I expected them to be. And when we drove onto the land, especially that end of the road where our land was, everything was really similar. And I got out of the car, started walking towards the cabin, which was standing there and burst into tears, totally overcome with emotion. My parents just they're pretty stoic. So there were no tears from my parents, but we were definitely lots of, oh my God, and this and this and this, and, you know, just very excited. The couple that live there now couldn't have been nicer and more welcoming to us and let us totally roam. What surprised you the most upon your visit? The cabin, how tiny it was. And granted, they have taken off some of the addition, the stuff we had added to it. So it's just the original cabin that we lived in the first year, year and a half. But I remember that as small, but I don't remember it as a shed. (laughs) It was essentially the size of a shed. I mean, it is teeny, teeny, tiny. And that was pretty shocking to think that four of us were living in that for a while. So in addition to going to visit the land, you also did some tours of a couple bookstores here in Arkansas, too. What was it like getting to share your story that you'd written and you'd put together in the Pacific Northwest to finally, like be here and to talk about it with people who wanted to hear about it, who were in the place where the story takes place. It was cool. I, when I did it in Ar- I did it in Mountain View in Stone County at the Arkansas Craft School. And I was definitely more nervous than I had been because I didn't know. I felt nervous, like how will locals um, receive this story? And it's been 42 years since I left this place. And, you know, I was feeling nervous, but there were a few locals in the audience and they were incredibly receptive and I think very excited to see their world in a book. And in fact, one of the women that came, she had been principal at Rural Special where I had gone to school. So she was very interested and excited. Sarah Neidhart is the author of 20 Acres. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Bentonville, Fort Smith, and Pleasant Valley. Contributors today included Anna Pope, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Daniel Carruth, and Jacqueline Froelich. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. We're back tomorrow with a brand new edition of Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. The Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville invites families to play and make amazing memories this summer. Discover hands-on experiences for all ages, all summer long. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. Hours, upcoming programs, and more at amazium.org. The final concert of the KUAF Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series with McDonald's Lunch All Day takes place September 16th at 704 South Washington Avenue in Fayetteville beginning at 7 p.m. Lunch All Day will be an all-day celebration with previous Lunch Hour performers Pura Coco, Eddie Canyon, Old Man Saxon, and others. For details or to reserve your tickets, KUAF.com slash summer concerts. Walton Arts Center's 10 by 10 art series begins Sunday, September 10th at 7 p.m. with Scythian, Ukraine to Appalachia. This foursome brings Celtic, Eastern European, and Appalachian influences together with technical precision, telling musical stories steeped in various folk traditions. Tickets and information at waltonartscenter.org.